0: We're going to be in 2 Kings this morning. We've been going through First and Second Kings, which is really just one long book of the Bible. They just split it up to make it easy for printing and translating and keeping up with. Um, this is a really interesting story that... Uh, if, well, let me go back for a second. We, I've kind of split the timelines up as we finish 2 Kings, in case you're following along and you get confused. Um, towards the end of 2 Kings, the story of Judah and the story of Israel kind of weave back and forth. And it, it makes more sense when you're just reading it kind of quickly. But when you're trying to preach it, it can get really confusing. Which, and, and it gets even more confusing because the names all sound the same. And it gets, I was looking at it, I was like, you know what, this will actually be easier if we kind of do Israel's story until they go into exile, and then go back and do Judah's story until they go into exile. So last week we finished Israel's story, which is depressing, and now we're going to be talking about Judah, okay? Um, so if you recall, the kingdom of Israel split in a very old dispute. Judah is to the south, Israel's is to the north. There used to be one, um, So if you remember back to Ahaziah, this is the guy that Jehu killed wrongfully. Jehu killed some people rightfully, and then he killed a bunch of people wrongfully. One of those bunch of people was Ahaziah. He's the descendant of David, king of Judah, that Jehu murdered when Jehu was bringing judgment against the line of Ahab. Okay, so Ahaziah's mother, if you're reading this, the relationships get confusing. You've got to stop and read it like three times and figure out who's connected to who. But Ahazia's mother, her name is Athaliah. And when she discovered her son was dead, she decided to take the opportunity to take the throne as queen. So she goes, hey, my son is dead. So sad. I think I'll be queen now. This is how these people are. But in order to do that, she needs to kill all of the descendants of David and Judah because they have a rightful claim to the throne before her. So she does, you know, as one does, and begins to wipe out an entire family line. Now this is a problem, not just because it's murder, but because this is the promised promise-keeping family of David, from whom God has promised the Messiah would come. That this family would remain on the throne forever and we've we've looked at that prophecy several times that this is the family that will bring the messiah the eternal king the once and for all true and better perfect righteous king so if david gets wiped out if his whole family gets wiped out well you've wiped out the hope of the world So this is a scary moment she would have succeeded were it not for Jehosheba see the names are confusing, daughter of King Joram and sister of Ahaziah. She stole one of Ahaziah's infant sons named Joash along with his wet nurse. She hid them away out of reach of Athaliah's hitmen. Joash remained hidden in the temple for six years while Athaliah ruled Judah as her, their wicked queen who had she thought had wiped out all the competition. He was the only survivor from the line of David at this point. Is it, there's a couple of times in Israel's history where this is true. Where it's down to one person left. Like, why would God? This seems so fragile. This is a bad plan, God. Like it seems like you'd put You know, the the hope of the world in the hands of some people that were stronger and survived better. We're down to one, one little baby. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? One little baby. He's the only survivor from the line of David at this point, which made him the only one that carried the hope of God's promise. Then when Joash is seven years old, a priest named Jehoiada, who's a great guy, he becomes very important in the story, stages a coup, where the boy is revealed as the rightful king and protected by Athaliah's own military captains who are recruited away from her to protect the rightful king. And Joash is set in as the new king, and Athaliah is killed at the palace gates. Epic stuff. So we've had this secret baby hidden away in the temple until he's old enough to take the throne. I mean, old enough, seven years old. (laughs) But he's there because... He's from David. That's his lineage. That's the promise. That's what God said. And that's what God's going to do. Jehoiada, the priest, is acting like a prophet, interestingly. He's acting a lot like that. He's doing the stuff Elijah used to do. You know, putting in kings, taking them out, moving things around. So all this is really interesting, but the most important event here is what the priest Jehoiada does after Joash is put on the throne. Let's look at this, 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 17 to 20. It says, Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people. Triangle covenant. That they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars and his images, they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. And he took the captains, the Kerites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, that's Joash, marching through the gate of the guard to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. So Jehoiada renews a covenant. This is what we've been wanting to happen in Israel and never quite made it. He says we're going to renew our covenant not only between the king and the people saying like, hey, you know, you're, you're committed to the king and the king's committed to you. He's not going to use and abuse you anymore. I mean, you can guess where that's going to go. But For now, there's a covenant, right? And more importantly, between the king and God and between the people and God. Now we have a right relationship. This is what we wanted to happen. Jehoiada's a priest. He understands the importance (laughs) of covenant and that this is what's been missing in Judah. Jehoiada goes a step further and places guards around the true temple, not the temple of Baal. Then he escorts Joash to his throne because he's a priest. He knows the importance of worship. That The temple is the epicenter of our worship. And so he puts guards around it for the first time in probably 200 years. The temple is being honored as being important and as a place of worship. Then Joash, King Joash, makes a decree, seven-year-old King Joash makes a decree that the priest in the temple will collect money and repair the temple, which is over hundred years old at this point and likely very neglected. Imagine your house after a hundred years of ignoring it. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it's like two days. <laughs> Imagine a hundred years. This is what the temple is in disrepair. So he says, We're going to collect money. We're going to take up a collection. And we're going to replace all the stuff in the temple that's, that's fallen in disrepair. We're going to fix it back up because this is important. So we've got guards around it. We're taking up money. The problem is 23 years pass by and no repairs are made because Joash can't get anything done. He's seven years old. <laughs> so he makes this decree and, and they're, taking, they're collecting money. But nothing's getting done. No repairs are being made. So it's Jehoiada, the priest that got Joash set in as king, removed Baal worship, and now he goes and he completes the project. He actually makes a, a box and puts a hole in it. There's an actual collection box. It's biblical, right? He makes a collection box and he puts it out and people collect the money and then he makes everyone do the job. He rebukes the priest for not getting the work done and gets it done. So you can see here, this is important because you need to see that Joash is actually not the one leading the country at this point. It's the priest. Joash is now 30 years old and has been on the throne for 23 years but can't seem to get anything done without Jehoiada. So before Joash is taken off the throne through another coup, he fails like every other king before him. Let's look at this 17 to 18. 18 chapter 12 it says at that time Hazael king of Syria so this is one of the bad guys went up and fought against Gath and took it but when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem Jehoash which is also Joash that's just a different spelling if that's not confusing enough for you it's the same guy king of Judah took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred gifts and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent these to Hazael, king of Syria. Then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. So Joash goes and he repairs their temple, he puts guards around it, he brings all this money, he restores all the treasuries, all the sacred artifacts inside the temple. And then when Syria comes and knocks on the door and says, "I'm going to attack you," he empties it and sends it all to Syria so that they'll leave him alone. He caves instantly. Syria applied pressure and Joash emptied the temple of its sacred implements. So the assessment of Joash in the end was that he failed to tear down the high places of worship. Just like every other king had done. And he only dealt, because he only dealt with Baal worship, which was a positive move, but he didn't go far enough. Second Chronicles 24 actually says that after Jehoiada's death, the priest... He allowed idol worship to flourish and even had Jehoiada's son executed for opposing idol worship after him. So Jehoiada dies and Joash immediately allows idol worship to flourish in Judah. And Jehoiada's son says this is ungodly and Joash has him killed. So he had a chance. He had a chance to get it right and he failed as soon as Jehoiada was out of the picture. Following Joash, the temple appears to remain in decent shape, though now is empty of all its treasures. Yet, just like Israel, the succession of kings is unimpressive. However, it should be noted that these kings do have a very slightly better track record on a personal level. Just, and I don't just mean slightly. <laughs> They're slightly better. It's why they last longer before exile than Israel does, is they just a little bit more righteous they're taxing the patience of the lord a little less than israel none of them remove idol worship at the high places in judah we'll get to hezekiah and josiah next week which is a bright spot because they actually do remove all the high places and all the idol worship for a season at least but i want to focus on what i think is the peak evil in judah the peak moment, or we should say maybe not the peak, the, 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 the lowest point. The lowest and the low point, and it's connected to Joash and what he did with the temple. And then I think we're going to, we'll be able to draw some interesting applications from that. So during the reign of Pekah in Israel, we mentioned him last week, Ahaz takes the throne in Judah. Ahaz is terrible. 2 Kings 16, 2-4 says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. We've heard that phrase a few times. But look at this sentence: "He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, Israel, the Canaanites. And he sacrificed and made offerings. On the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now I have a son. I cannot imagine burning him, sacrificing him to a false god. Child sacrifice was a feature of worship in the Canaanite worship of the Canaanite god Molech. This is probably who this is. This practice would continue in Judah for generations also happened in Israel. But Ahaz doesn't stop here. It's hard to imagine something worse than child sacrifice. But he does. Here's what happens. Tensions between Judah and Israel increase to a breaking point. They actually go to war with each other. Israel teams up with Rezin, king of Syria, and then attacks Judah. Okay? So Israel has teamed up with the enemy. If you've been following first and second king, Syria is always the bad guy and Assyria who comes into, the, into play in just a second. So he teams up with, the, uh, with, with Syria and then Judah reaches out to Tilglath-Pileser, I think that's how you say that, king of Assyria, makes an agreement with them for help, but Ahaz sells the soul of the nation to get it. And here's what he does. Chapter 16, 7 through 18, it says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. He says, I am your servant and your son. Assyria is quite possibly the most wicked nation on the planet. Verse 8, Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord, whatever is left, and in the treasures of the house, and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Raisin. And when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. So this is probably an altar to Molech. So understand what this is. This is probably a place where children were sacrificed to a false god. And he sees this altar in Damascus. the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying his people. women I lost my place. Verse 10, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it Before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus, and when the king came to Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar, the pagan altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, that's the temple, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt offering, and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering, and their drink offering, and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering, and all the blood of the sacrifice, what the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this, as King Ahaz commanded and King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them. And he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put on a stone pedestal. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king he caused to go around the house of the Lord because, the king, because of the king of Assyria. Do you understand what he's doing. He goes to a pagan place, to Damascus. And he sees their altar where they do their demonic sacrifices. And he makes a model. And he sends it back to the priest in the temple to Yahweh in Judah, in Jerusalem. And he says to him, I want you to build this altar just like this, right out in front of the temple. And then I want you to stop doing The sacrifices of worship and atonement that we do in the temple to God, I want you to start doing them on this wicked altar. And then he goes into the temple and he dismantles the entire thing. Cuts it into pieces and he makes the pathway that he would walk on Sabbath to go to the temple and he makes it go around the temple completely bypassing it altogether. Just to appease and impress Assyria the details of verse 17 and 18 strike me because we went through Remember, way way back 1st Kings we spent all that time talking about Solomon's temple and all the detail and the bowls and the washing cisterns and all of that stuff all that detail He's calling it all back from your memory. And all that stuff that was put in, that was to point us to the greatness of God and his coming redemption has now been dismantled and replaced by an evil, wicked altar to a false god. And he doesn't even do false god worship next to Yahweh worship anymore. He replaces it and he tries to worship God on a pagan altar Stained with the blood of children. It is absolutely horrifying to think about. They have actually made it impossible now to worship God in the temple because they've destroyed all the implements of their worship. So I've been thinking about how, how does this apply to us? Right? Like what... What do we? I mean, it's it's like it's easy to read this and go, "Wow, this is disturbing." What? How far this guy went? What a terrible king, right? That's all true. But what do we? How does this apply to us? Well, if you've been in this church for a while, you know when you see the temple in the Old Testament, you should think church. This is the church. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are living stones put together into a temple, right? We are the temple. Not, it's not a structure, it's not a building, it's people. You personally are the temple of the Holy Spirit and us together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if we're the temple, what did Ahaz and Joash have in common? They both defiled the temple in order to save the nation. They were more afraid of their enemies than they were of God. So when their enemy just merely threatened to come knocking on the door they took everything out of the temple all the holy sacred things defiled it emptied it of its value and then gave it away to their enemy to appease them ahaz just did what joash did and just went a step further he was really impressive assyria thought wow you guys are just like us when i come into your place it feels like home and it you you've got all the trappings all the familiar worship things that are back home including the way you sacrifice it all feels like home and he's very impressed so I tell you what now that we're friends i won't kill you what they all missed was that you should never ever defile the temple or temple in order to save the nation The answer is always actually to get into the temple and worship the one true God. What they should have done, every one of these kings who did this, they should have gone and said, we have an enemy standing at our door threatening us. Let's go to God because we fear him above all else. Who else can save us but him? So we'll go to him and we'll repent of our sin and we'll worship him. And instead they capitulated. The answer is always worship. And to put your fear in the right place. So American Christianity is suffering under a terrible temptation to empty the spiritual treasuries of the church in order to align itself with the world with the goal of saving the nation. And everybody's got answers about how America can be saved. And they're asking the church will you will you defile the temple to save the nation? I think there are at least two enemies knocking on our door. They are both enemies. But both of them promise to save the nation if they will just let them in the door. Just let me in. Just give me your treasures. Cough it up, church. Just let me in the door. If you let me in, I'll save you. Otherwise, I'll destroy you. The first I see is so-called progressive Christianity. I say so-called because I don't think the word Christianity should be hyphenated. (laughs) It stops being Christianity when you hyphenate it. But it bends and distorts the long-held doctrines of the church in order to bend to the will of popular ideologies regarding sex, gender, marriage, Christ as the only way to God, God's law as the basis for morality, on and on and on and on. It seeks to bend the nature of reality and truth to our will. It wants to say, I should be able to create myself in my own image. I want to be my own creator and my own God that I am an end unto myself. It's the the ultimate goal of self-actualization. Be yourself, be your best self, your true happy self, and that's success. And so we save the world by everyone figuring out who you want yourself to be. Create yourself, recreate yourself in your own image as you would like to be. Never mind what reality is. Bend reality to your own will. And if everyone can do that, then we will save the nation. Make no mistake, we will be loving, welcoming. And kind, We will treat everyone with genuine hospitality, but we will not bend the truth for the sake of unity. We can't do it. We will not defile the church to save the nation. Jesus calls us, actually, and says, come be born again, right? Be remade, not in the image of the world according to the pattern of the world, but be conformed to the image of Christ, right? So this is, this is the fundamental nature of Christianity, is come, die, be resurrected in my image. Come, be conformed to Christ. So everybody, true success is everyone being conformed to him, being remade in his image, not in our own. This plays itself out in all sorts of different venues in the world, but the core ideology is you get to make yourself whatever you want yourself to be, not him. The right of self-determination must die so that you, all of you, can be determined by God. And I, I want to just tell you, this is the hard road, okay? Like, if, if you're a Christian and you're, one, and you're in this church, I'm just telling you, being here is taking you down a hard road because we're not going to bend on this. Jesus determines reality. And he is the only one who can bend reality to his own will. And we must conform to him. And we do it. There's grace in it. There's love. He loves you. It's good for us. But at a basic level, he is the one we bend to, not ourselves. The easy road is what many churches are doing now is that they're just saying, you be you. Just be you. Come here. This is a place where you can come and just be you. And that sounds really great. It actually sounds very loving, but in the end, it's not Christianity. The message is, come, die, and be like Christ. He will make you into a, a beautiful reflection of who he is. And that is far better than any construction you can make of yourself so that's one enemy that's knocking at the door of the church not just Living Hope Church but every church right now with the promise that if you let us in we'll save the nation we'll get rid of that big bad all the bad enemies we'll get rid of them all and we'll save you the second one is the second enemy I see knocking at the door asking for capitulation is So called Christian nationalism. That's the boogeyman people are afraid of, or that's the answer to the boogeyman of progressive Christianity. I first started hearing about this a few years ago among some of the what I think of as the sillier corners of the church, but it's now gaining popularity among more theologically minded leaders, and it's bad news. You don't have to travel far. I've traveled enough to know that America is a wonderful place. I just got back from Cuba where they do not have the freedom of speech. They do not have the freedom of religion. And to go there, and they don't have capitalism, and they have no prosperity. And And you go there and you realize, wow, just being able to say what I want to say changes so many things. It changes how I look at myself, how I look at the world, how I move around in the world. It changes relationships. I can sit in a restaurant and I can talk. I can have a real conversation with somebody and not worry about who's listening and recording what I'm saying and reporting it to the government. I can say stuff. I might make some people mad. I might make you mad this morning. But I can say stuff. That's a beautiful, wonderful thing. We should all be grateful for that. But there is a lot of pressure towards the American church to go far beyond gratitude in this regard. There is a movement which I think is the prosperity gospel disguised as conservative family values. It confuses the kingdom of God for the kingdom of the United States. Instead of calling the church a city on a hill and a light to the world, it assigns that title and role to the United States. I've actually heard preachers talk about the United States as a city on a hill and a light unto the world. Taking words Scripture gives to the church and only the church and assigning them to a nation and saying to the church, the hope of the world is the United States. Instead of rejoicing that God has made a covenant with the church through Christ, it declares that God has a special covenant with the United States. And they would never say the kingdom of God and the kingdom of America are the same. Of course, they wouldn't. They're Christians. But you can't tell by the way they talk. And this ideology sets itself up as an answer to the enemy of progressive Christianity that I just talked about. If you want to be saved from that, then buy into this. Let me in the church. Just let me in. Sell off what you got. Give me your treasures. Give me your heart. Give me your worship. Give me your hope, and I'll save the nation. It declares that hope the hope of the nation is political power and winning the culture world wars, and we must win that war at any cost, even if it's our own soul. But what's God's answer to a broken world? God's answer to a broken world is a spirit-filled church. The hope of the nation is a faithful, God-worshipping church who refuses to desecrate herself to save it. So let me be clear. This is not a Republican church. This is not a Democrat church. This is also not a libertarian church. Those of you, I know who you are. (laughs) Hiding in the corners. This is a church that worships Yahweh and Yahweh alone, and we see Him and the church as the hope of the world. We're a mess, but we're the hope of the world. What kind of a big deal? I don't know why. It's as silly as one little baby named Joash being the last remaining remnant of the line of David. And you look at that and go, how could God let this happen? There's strength in numbers, right? We should have more, more people in case, one, in case Joash trips and hit, knocks his head and dies, right? Then what? This is what God does. He puts the hope of the world in weak little places. And I think the lie of the world, of both of these ideologies, is you're not strong enough. You're not the light of the world. Look at what a mess you are. Look how broken and confused and wimpy you seem. These weird little churches that don't make any sense to me. Let me help you save the world. Just buy in. God's calling his church to be filled with the spirit and to fear God above all. We need to guard our hearts from the defiling compromises with those that set themselves against the church and against God. God's answer to the sin in the world and all of its wicked ideologies is a spirit-filled church. When I was reading about Joash putting the guards around the temple, I immediately just thought about Paul saying to the elders, defining what an elder is in the church, and the distinction between an elder and a deacon, the main one is that you guard the doctrine of the church. And that's, you know, that's not just the big doctrines that are easily written down on paper. It's also what we believe. That's really what that means, is guard what the church believes. And this is one of the things we are committed to doing here, is that these two demonic ideologies will not find root in this church. If I have anything to do with it. (laughs) Jamie, too. Jamie's one of our elders, by the way. Not just a random person sitting over there. Um, but I want to challenge you to consider and look at your own heart and ask where have these things taken root in the temple of your own heart? Who are the enemies at the gate? I think internally in the church, you know, this story is talking about external enemies coming in and trying to weasel their way in. Internally, idolatry, we've talked about that a lot. We haven't talked about Phariseeism, but that's one. There's a lot of internal enemies. But the external ones, we've got to deal with. We've got to be sure about, because there's an election coming, and it's going to get weird. I'm telling you right now, it's going to get weird. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be weird. And some of you are going to be tempted, sorely tempted, by very spiritual wise-sounding people who say, just let me in the door. They're going to tell you that there's an answer other than the church, being filled with the Spirit and worshiping God and being like Christ. And any answer to the sin in the world other than that is by definition demonic, no matter how Christian or spiritual or wise it sounds. We are people of the book and people of the Spirit. Amen? Amen? told you Heather's not here so I can do whatever I want. I would like to pray. so I think we need discernment. I think we need to be filled with the Spirit. I look at the temple and I go, man, it's so sad that that temple was empty and just stripped of all its sacred things. And I want us as a church to be filled with the treasures of Christ. And that we would stand around it and protect it at all costs. Right? No matter what. We will protect the church, and we will be filled with the Spirit. All right? So that's, that's, to me, that's the answer. And so why don't we stand up together, and um, I would like to pray. Lord, sometimes it feels like, as the church, it feels like there's enemies on every side. Some of them are obvious enemies, and some of them are sneaky ones. Enemies that pretend like they're our friends. And ask us to make small little compromises in what we know God's called us to do and called us to be and... Others are obvious, loud, and aggressive enemies. But they're all enemies. And God, we want to be faithful to you. Sometimes we don't even have the discernment to know where we're compromising. So God, the only thing we know to do is what you tell us over and over again from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament is to gather in the temple and be filled with the Spirit and to give our worship to you unfiltered, unrestricted to not divide our worship but to give it all to you so we ask you right now Holy Spirit would you come and fill us fill this temple this temple of my own heart individually but also the the temple of Living Hope Church this Pile this weird pile of living stones that have been put together by your hand. Would you fill us with your spirit? God, keep us from being distracted by our enemies. Help us to give our hearts and our minds and our bodies over to you in worship. Holy Spirit, once again, we ask you to fill us completely to overflowing. God, I pray that we would be by the Spirit more conformed to the image of Christ right now. That we will be filled with the power of Christ to declare the gospel to the world and to demonstrate it with power. God, I pray for a harvest of souls people who don't know you, don't believe you, don't even see you for who you are. That they would see you for the first time, their eyes would be opened, their blindness gone, and their hearts, the hearts of stone turned into hearts of flesh. God, that your church, not just this local church, but your church in the United States would be woken up from its slumber, from its distraction. God, that you would run the money changers out. God, that you would drive every false God, every false belief, every false ideology out of your church, that you would purify her, and that you would fill your church with yourself with your truth, God, that we would conform only to you, God, that your church would be the city on the hill in this nation, God, we will not defile the temple to save the nation, but we do ask you to save the nation from its enemies, the enemies are real, they are serious, and we ask you to come and fight for us. God, that your kingdom would be advanced and that the world would see the real thing, not the fake thing, not the the gospel they have heard that we believe, but the actual gospel. So Lord, we receive you, not just for us here, but on behalf of your church. all the churches around the country right now gathering together and worshiping all the sermons being spoken all the prayers being prayed would you visit them with your spirit fill every temple pray this in the name of Jesus Amen